0: Jodcast, Punting Material to a Planet Near You with Libby Jones, Indy Leclerc, Mark Perver, Christina Smith, and Joe The Jodcast, June 2013 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Mark, and joining me today are Libby and Christina.
1: Hello.
0: In the show this time, we have Indy talking to Dr. Omar al about the ultra-deep sky survey, Dr. Joe Zuntz answering your astronomical questions, and we round up some odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, here's Indy talking to Dr. Eamon Kerrins in this month's Jodbyte. For this
2: month's Jodbyte, we're with Dr. Eamon Kerens. Hi, Eamon. Hi. Eamon is involved in the VVV survey, so um, could you tell us a little bit more about that, what the initial stands for, right Start
3: so <laughs> uh so indeed uh, vvv stands for vista variables in the via lactea so that last uh that last word is the milky way and uh so it's a survey in the infrared wavelength range being conducted on the vista telescope which is located at uh, paranal observatory in chile so vista was actually constructed by uh by the uk but it was used as part of the UK's payment into ESO, uh, so it is now an ESO telescope. But UK astronomers have a very active involvement in the science that's currently being done with VISTA. So VISTA is the world's largest uh, infrared telescope. It's 4.1-metre mirror, and it's got a wonderful uh, wide-field uh, camera, which... um covers, well, it covers an area of about 1.6 square degrees with a couple of pointings to fill in for overlaps. And so it opens up the, the infrared sky to us in a, in a, in a way which allows us to survey large areas of sky in the near infrared. And that's really, really nice, especially for galactic studies where in the optical we're obscured by, by dust. In the near infrared, uh, we can see uh, a long way through that dust. And so it's really exciting for us.
2: Okay so what what specifically is the telescope uh, looking for
3: So for the VVV project um we're doing the very first large scale variability survey in the near infrared So surveys like this have been done over the last uh, decade or so at optical wavelengths. So we have surveys such as Ogle and Macho that set out to look for dark matter. Nowadays, they're, they're looking for exoplanets and variable stars. These surveys are looking towards the center of our galaxy. So some of the most crowded uh, regions of the sky. They're monitoring uh, millions of stars looking for basically the needles in a haystack, the, the, the few stars out of a few thousand that are varying. And some of those variations might be due to uh intrinsic variability of the stars themselves of different types of variable star and some of those variations are are due to other effects such as gravitational lensing etc so these these um optical surveys have uncovered a, a wealth of data i mean they survey hundreds of millions of stars it's quite a computational project to Actually, process those images and to find the variations and to model those variations with time. Um, so we're now doing that. Infrared technology uh, uh, lags behind optical technology, so it's only really now that the technology is is there to actually do that in the in the infrared. So the, the VVV survey is looking in five different near infrared filters, um, and in one of those filters, at around uh, two microns. We are regularly uh, taking observations of about, um, uh, a total of about 500 square degrees of the inner galaxy, Uh, that's the bulge in the inner disk, and uh, that project is taking place um, over five years. So we're going to build up a library of variable stars of all different kinds at infrared wavelengths, uh, with a, a baseline of five years. And as I said, that's the first time we'll have done that in the infrared. And in the infrared region, we'll be able to map variable stars in the heart of our galaxy that we just can't see at optical wavelengths.
2: Yeah, yeah so the obvious advantage of infrared is that it, it sort of peers through the dust. What more
3: can it tell us compared to optical surveys? Right, so, so the first thing, because of the lessened dust, we get a, a, a much more, if you like, an unbiased view of where different variable populations are uh, towards the centre of our galaxy. Uh, And so that's a a very useful um, study in itself. Uh, Secondly, certain classes of variable stars um, are so-called standard candles. That is to say that they're the... Period over which they vary. These are, you know, uh, periodic variables. Variables which uh, uh, vary in their intrinsic brightness in a very um, predictable way. Okay. So these periodic variables, uh, some some subset of those are standard candles. So they're the length of time over which they make one complete cycle of variation is related to how intrinsically bright they are. so, And that's incredibly useful to astronomers because we can model the length of time these objects vary and we can determine from that how intrinsically bright they are, compare that to how apparently bright they are from our observing site and work out how far away along the line of sight they are. So if we can do that for a very large sample of stars, so tens of thousands of stars, we can begin to build up a three-dimensional picture of stars in the inner galaxy. And so one one type of uh, variable star uh, is called an Ara Lyrae, and, and, and that class of variable star, we we expect tens of thousands of them to be visible to Vista, to, to our survey, the VVV survey. Um, and so we're going to use those to trace the inner galactic structure. So that's, there's okay. many other projects that VVV hopes to do, but that's probably one of the prime science drivers. Okay
2: and um so where does your research fit into the global uh, survey
3: So so my job in the survey if you like is is the guy who's um uh trying to find the needle in a haystack so I'm, my my job and my my student Leo Huckvale, we're we're both uh building the the pipeline that's going to be used to uh find the variable stars And to model their variations. Now there is a there is a sort of standard pipeline. The Vista telescope data products are shipped from um, Paranal Observatory to a data processing centre in Cambridge, which does a a reasonable job at processing vast amounts of data. But if we really want to get down to uh, the most sensitive measurements of variations that we can, then we have to use a specialised technique called difference imaging so that 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 pro- type of processing isn't done by cambridge but we're doing it here at manchester so this is where uh, it, it's it's basically a technique which is the, the the ultimate way to do a spot the difference competition if you've got okay. if you've got two you know spot the difference pictures and you've got to find uh, 10 differences between the pictures uh the cheating way of doing that would be to take a photograph of each of the pictures uh and then um completely register the two photographs spatially so they they are exactly aligned on top of each other, and then to subtract the two images and form a new image, a difference image. And that difference image would then show up only the changes, and you could pick them up completely. So we do that in astronomy, but there's the added complication that certainly from the ground, from places like Paranal, we have to look through the Earth's atmosphere, and that changes uh from moment to moment and that tends to blur out the starlight at different to, to different degrees at different times. Okay. So that's one problem we have to deal with. The other problem is one night the moon is up, the next night it's down, or there's you know, some city nearby with lights on, which changes the ambient level of the sky brightness. So these changes are not going to tell us anything about the intrinsic variability of stars. So we have to Develop a technique which can automatically subtract off and correct for those changes. So the difference imaging method copes with that. Um, and so it's, it's quite computationally expensive. Um, and so it's, it's quite a, Uh, an intensive task to do. And so myself and Leo, we've, we've built the pipeline. It's running. In fact, there's a version of it running right now from, from my office a few feet away. And, uh, over the coming months, we're going to build up a library of, uh, fingers crossed millions of light curves. Some subset of those will be, for instance, standard candle variables that we'll, we'll use to do the science.
2: Wow. That's, that's a really interesting, uh, technique. So once you've built up a, a large catalogue of, of variable stars, what's what's the next step for the VVV?
3: So with this catalogue, we'll want to look at different types of variable star or transient objects, You know, some one-off variations that we might pick up on. We need to identify those according to the shapes of the variations in time, uh, where they're located... Uh, how bright they look at uh, the infrared wavelength, which we'll get with VVV, versus how bright some of the subset of them look in optical wavelengths through the optical surveys, and get a better definition of of the different classes of variable objects. But then, with any sort of first large-scale survey, such as the first large-scale optical surveys, um, there isn't a rule book. You know, there is, so we, we fully expect to uncover new things. And that's the great thing about these very large scale harvesting surveys. So things like the Sloan Digital Sky Sky Survey is fantastic for that. The Ogle Survey has been fantastic for that. And I fully expect the VVV survey to pull up the unexpected. And perhaps that's the, perhaps ultimately the site, the greatest science that will come from these kinds of surveys is the science I can't even tell you about yet because I don't even know myself.
2: Yeah, that's, that's the exciting bit, isn't it? Great. Thanks very much for your time, Eamon, and I hope to see you sometime soon on the podcast. <laughs>
0: Great, thanks. Thanks for that, Indy. And now here's Indy again, talking to Dr. Omar Al-Maini about galaxy evolution and the Ultra Deep Sky Survey. I'm here with Dr. Omar Almani. Hello. Hi. He's here to
2: talk about galaxy formation and evolution. He's been leading uh, the Ultra Deep Survey based at the University of Nottingham. So um, what can you tell us about this uh, survey?
4: Yeah, thanks. Uh, so this is a project that's been going on since 2005, and the idea is to obtain a very, very deep, very, very large image of a distant universe to study very, very distant galaxies and study them in large numbers for the first time. So every year we take more data, and we've been accumulating uh, over a 1,000 hours of exposure so far, and we've co-added all that data to produce the deepest image ever obtained over a square degree in the infrared. And what this allows us to do is not only detect very, very faint galaxies ray out to redshifts of six and seven, which means looking back 13 billion years back in time, um, but we can detect them in large numbers. So we can detect thousands of galaxies 12, 11, 10, 8 billion years back in time, and by comparing them at different stages in the evolution of the universe, we can try and understand how galaxies form and evolve.
2: Okay, so just to clarify for our listeners, when you say deep, you mean sort of looking further back in distance and time uh, in the universe then.
4: That's right, yeah. Because of the finite speed of light, when we detect very, very distant galaxies, we're also looking back in time. The faintest galaxies we can detect are at redshifts above six. What does that mean? That means we the, the light has travelled over 13 billion years to reach our telescopes. So we're looking back at the very, very early stages of the universe because we really believe the universe is roughly 13.7 billion years. So we can actually detect galaxies in the first billion years after the Big Bang. The image that we have now is so deep, we've detected over 200,000 galaxies. And when you look at this image, and I'll send you a link to the image that we produced, most of the galaxies that you see in that image, the light left those galaxies before the Earth was even formed. Most of them are so far away that they're distances of you know, more than 6 billion light years. So uh, this is, you know, mind-boggling, um, but it allows us to do some pretty unique things. Uh, we can study galaxies as they were very, very far back in time, and actually witness the formation and evolution of galaxies at various slices through cosmic time. So we're studying evolution, but unlike people who try to study, so you know, the evolution of of life on Earth, we can actually see galaxies as they were way back in time, which gives us a very privileged perspective.
2: Yeah, that, that is. Pretty amazing. So, what distinguishes earlier galaxies from later galaxies? How do they evolve, essentially?
4: It's a very good question. So, uh, it's one of the many puzzles, actually, uh, in this area. Uh, galaxies way back then, the most massive galaxies in particular, appear to have formed very, very rapidly. Uh, this is something that astounded astronomers maybe 10 years ago. We could actually detect massive, fully evolved galaxies already fully assembled and in place. 8 billion years back in time, and that essentially turned models of galaxy formation on their head in the early 2000s. The classic idea was that the most massive galaxies only form gradually through the slow build-up and merging of smaller systems. To actually see big monsters in place 8 billion years ago uh, was a big surprise. So uh, what appears to happen is that the very massive galaxies form and assemble first, and then something very mysterious happened. Something then switches off the formation of any more stars. So that the biggest galaxies we see around us today, the big elliptical galaxies, which are very, very red, not forming any stars, most of the action, most of their formation occurred very early on in the universe. Some mysterious phenomenon then prevented the formation of any more stars. And then they, they what we call, passively evolved since then. So that's one of the big differences early on. Activity in the early universe was concentrated in forming the most massive galaxies we see today.
2: So, so what happens to the to the passive galaxies? Did they just sort of stay where they are? Did they maybe disperse over time? Or yeah,
4: lots of puzzles. Uh, so, actually, one puzzling aspect of them is not only did they form very early on, uh, when we look at them back in time, they're much smaller than they are today. This is a, a fairly recent discovery. Not only do we see massive very, very large galaxies that have already formed stars, already shut off their star formation. When we see them in the early universe, they're smaller than they are today. So some process puffs them up, makes them larger. Okay. And there are various ideas of what this might be. It might be interactions with their neighbours. It might be something associated with the black hole in the middle. It's an ongoing topic of research. But uh, that, that's the nice thing about this field. There are lots of different puzzles to, to work on.
2: Yeah, that's always uh, a nice challenge and is there anything else that you could uh, tell us about these these earlier galaxies that that differentiate them from uh, from later galaxies uh in terms of um the way they interact with the surrounding uh the surrounding universe or
4: yeah, that's actually a good point i'm going to be uh, showing some new results today on outflows from from galaxies we can actually study outflowing gas that's been ejected perhaps by exploding stars supernova And what we find is that, uh, well, in the present-day universe, very, very large-scale, massive outflows, winds from galaxies are quite rare phenomena. Only a few percent of galaxies actually do this locally. Very, very extreme starburst galaxies, they're called. What we find is that in the early universe, if you look back, you know, maybe five, six billion years back in time, most galaxies seem to be undergoing uh, massive outflow events. In other words, they're throwing out vast amounts of gas, and material into their surrounding medium. So that's something that's very, very different from the present day. The outflows are much more common. So what we're witnessing is interaction between galaxies and their environments. It looks like the environments of the galaxies play major influence on on how they form and how they grow, but at the same time the galaxies themselves are ejecting gas, ejecting heavier elements into their surroundings.
2: Correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of seems that the universe is sort of... Um, winding down in energetic phenomena because there's less star formation, there are fewer outflows. Uh, could this be related to anything on a large scale or cosmologically?
4: That's a really good point. Um, yeah, activity as a whole in the universe peaked around about you know, 8, 10 billion years ago. That's when uh, star formation was at its peak. That's when uh, black holes in the cores of galaxies, supermassive black holes, were at their most active when quasars were much more abundant, quasars being, we believe, the very, very nuclear regions of galaxies emitting gigantic amounts of radiation. So activity generally peaked in the early universe, and it's been declining ever since. Uh, understanding exactly why this is is certainly a very important clue as to how and how, what forms galaxies and, and the process of galaxy formation. And uh, we think it might be related to actually dark matter, the dark matter halos within which galaxies formed. It seems that the most massive structures form and collapse first, and that might trigger the formation of the most massive galaxies and the biggest black holes. And then activity later on in the universe might be related with uh, smaller dark matter halos that collapse later on in the universe. So this is a clue as to what might be going on, but it's still an open question.
2: Okay, so possibly the universe is getting a bit more fragmented as thing go, things go along?
4: The activity is definitely winding down. It looks like most star formation in the present universe is going on in, in relatively small dark matter halos. And in the local universe, the, the most massive galaxies are dead. They are not forming stars. They did their thing already uh, maybe 8 billion years ago. So this is interesting... It's called downsizing. That's how, works. Uh, one of the, the phrases that uh, astronomers use to describe it. Uh, cosmic downsizing. Activity was more prevalent in the bigger systems early on in the universe, and in the present day universe, it seems to be winding down, and it's just a sort of trickle of uh, activity in the low mass halos.
2: Since we're talking about galaxies, um, how does the formation of a galaxy impact its its shape? Because most of our listeners know that galaxies can be split up into sort of spiral galaxies, elliptical galaxies. How do the early stages of formation, the things that you are looking at, impact maybe the shape of a galaxy further down the line?
4: So this is one of the major unsolved problems in astrophysics. Um, <laughs> uh, the, there's a real bimodality in galaxy properties. Uh, High-mass galaxies locally are elliptical in shape, and they're massive, and they're red, they're not forming stars. Low-mass galaxies are generally blue, which means they're forming stars, and they're generally disk-shaped, uh, they're basically spiral galaxies. Why do we have this bimodality It's a very, very good question. The number of this is what forms the elliptical galaxies, and how do they form? How do the massive ellipticals form? Do they form from the mergers of spiral systems, disk systems? That's one camp. Or do they form in a, in a much more monolithic collapse of gas in the higher edge of universe? And it's really not clear. There are reasons to expect if two massive galaxies spiral, massive spiral galaxies merge, you might naturally expect them to form a, a large bulge system. But then that bulge should then accrete gas and probably form a disc. So uh, exactly why this very acute bimodality is in place? is one of the big unsolved problems.
2: Wow. So as you mentioned earlier, plenty of uh, puzzles to, to ponder. Yeah. So so what does the future hold for uh, deep surveys? Is there a limit to how far back you can look? If you just add more and more hours of telescope time, will you just be, keep looking further and further back?
4: Yeah, good, very good question. It's actually a bit of both. I mean, our survey's been getting progressively deeper every year, and that allows us to look at fainter systems and more distant galaxies both of which give us very important clues as to what's going on. So increased depth is certainly going to help. But also looking at larger areas, that's something I'm going to be looking at over the next few years. If you look over slightly wider areas, you can sample a much wider range in galaxy environments. And uh, and, that allow- and that gives you a bit more leverage in trying to understand whether it's nature versus nurture, whether the environment is shaping galaxy evolution or whether it's a secular process associated with each the, the internal processes within a galaxy. And by sampling many more galaxies over a much wider range of environments over a larger area, we might have a bit of leverage to try and disentangle those two. Uh so to answer your question, yeah, but we need a bit of both. We need but fundamentally we need a lot more telescope
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well thanks very much.
4: All right, you're very welcome.
0: Thanks, Indy. And now we come on to that part of the show where we fit in everything we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. And I'm going to start off with a Chinese space mission. A mission called Shenzhou-10 has recently launched, On that was on the 11th of June, to dock with the Chinese space station Tiangong-1. And it was a long-march rocket, which is what they use for all the space missions as far as I remember, launched from Mongolia with three people on it. And it's the fifth manned space flight by China and the third one to go to Tiangong-1. And the rocket has, in fact, docked with the space station at the time of recording. I think that the Tychonauts, which is apparently what Chinese astronauts are called, being not astronauts or cosmonauts, but Tychonauts, they are on the space station now. But apparently it's not manned all the time. It's like a experimental or demonstration space station. So I guess they keep it ready for people to go on all the time, like with life support and stuff, because they were able to dock and then just get on board.
1: So how long will they be visiting their temporary space station?
0: It's a two-week mission. And during that time, they are going to... One of the things they're going to do is explore space adaptability and space ergonomics. So I think they're testing out comfy chairs in space.
5: That'd be so much fun.
0: (laughs) Space ergonomics. And they're also going to repair a few things, apparently, on the space station, which is interesting because after this mission that space station is going to be ditched, apparently, at some point. In the fairly near future, it's going to be brought down into the atmosphere and will burn up over the Pacific Ocean. It
5: seems bizarre to repair things on something you're about to crush into the Earth's atmosphere.
0: I think it's all the practice thing, because the aim is that around about the end of the decade, they're going to launch change 2 which is going to be a permanently manned space station, like the International Space Station is.
1: I they want to test the variability of how easy it is to replace different components and stuff like that. I think like they that.
0: do, yeah, because they're practising docking as well. So they're going to get back in the rocket and fly away and around a bit and then come back and park up again, which is obviously one of those things you need to practise.
1: Sounds fun, Go for a little drive around <laughs> the space for a while. Maybe they could go and visit their, their friends at the International Space Station.
0: <laughs> maybe. Maybe they could put them close together and then they have to do a reverse park around the ISS into Chang'an 1. no. Maybe not. I guess it's possible. Anyway, Chang'e 1 orbits 210 miles above the Earth's surface, and I think the ISS is a bit higher. I think it's about 230 miles, something like that. So, whether they see each other, I don't know. They probably do at some point.
5: What was the difference? Like, 30 miles?
0: Yeah. But that's assuming they're in the same part of the Earth's surface. I mean, your horizon is big when you're up there, but it's not massive. So, if they're on other sides of the planet, they might not see each other. I'm not sure.
5: You'd need some good binoculars, anyway.
0: If you were on the ISS, would you wave to Jangle One if you saw it? I would. Yeah.
1: would be friendly. Put well, they're to actually... neighbours.
0: Yeah, they're actually talking now about um, cooperation between perhaps the European Space Agency and the Chinese Space Agency. At some point, they're talking about perhaps collaborating on certain experiments and even... Some ESA astronauts are learning Chinese, apparently. And then one of the other interesting things is that, just like they do on the ISS, for the first time on Tiangong-1, they are delivering a school lesson broadcast directly down to a school, presumably in China, or maybe several schools. And they're going to do classes on the effects of microgravity on how objects move. So, you know, like when you get water going into blobs and floating around.
1: I do love the, the water videos of zero-gravity with all the blobs flying around.
0: I wonder if they'll be able to think of any sorts of new things to do.
1: Hmm, I'm going to ponder that. I'm ponder <laughs> zero, things to do in zero gravity.
0: <laughs> Libby goes into a daydream for the rest of the episode.
1: Which is not good because my end odd- is coming up next. A new type of variable star has been discovered in the open cluster NGC 3766 or also known as the Pearl Cluster, which I definitely prefer as a name. And what these people have been doing is doing a seven-year observing campaign for this open cluster, and they've been monitoring lots of different stars in this in this one cluster uh, to see how they change over time. And while they've been doing this, there's several types of known variable stars which they were monitoring, but they also discovered 36 stars that pulsated, or did some kind of variability, on very short timescales of 0.1 to 0.7 days.
5: That's a really short time.
1: They also only change by one to four milli magnitudes, which is a really tiny amount. How have they done
0: that? Maybe we should explain that because it's, it's brightness, right? Magnitudes. So yeah. it's the brightness that's varying, but a milli magnitude is
3: teeny.
1: Yeah. So it varies by a teeny amount over a very short period of time, but they do it does this very regularly. So over the seven years, it managed to build up quite a nice light curve of these stars of the. The magnitude is changing with time and as they're very regular you can plot and you plot the data and you can work out the actual period of the pulsations or variability depending on the type of star. These stars weren't expected to pulsate theoretically but we obviously now have evidence of them pulsating in a rapid timescale. So we don't know why this is and we can't model it so far which is interesting, so there must be some Exciting. unknown physics going on in these objects.
0: So do we then assume that that's happening in lots of other stars all over the place, or is this cluster special?
1: No, this cluster is a very ordinary cluster. The stars are slightly brighter than the Sun, but apart from that, there's no nothing special about it. Wow.
0: So I was thinking, these stars are pretty big. If they're like the Sun, they're about 700,000 kilometres in radius, and you've got something that's changing in 0.1 days. So that's and some kind of effect that's moving outwards at hundreds of thousands of kilometres an hour. That's fast.
1: It's very fast.
5: They must have had to observe them a lot, and in over very kind of short intervals, because I mean, 0.1 of a day is what 2.4 hours, which is a pretty short amount of time for it to sort of go pulse and back again.
0: The yes, it was doing it a lot, and they were measuring many pulsations, many periods.
1: Well, I guess if you take it over well, seven years and it's doing that on such a, a short day, you can quite quickly fill in the, the cycle. I guess. So you would hope that they, they've done a very good job at keeping count of timing and errors going on to, to get these tiny, tiny variable magnitudes. But it's really exciting that there's an entire new set of physics going on that we can possibly learn something about the star, maybe due to stellar rotation or some other effects inside the star that we really don't know. So maybe some astro seismology type data we could get from it. It'd be really cool and definitely a lot more information and more studies will have to be done on this type of new object that doesn't have a name yet.
5: That's really awesome. I think it's awesome. It? Okay, well, my odd slash end is about something called METI, which is Messaging to extraterrestrial intelligence or active SETI which yes. SETI's obviously been around for for a while now and
0: Searching, right, for
5: Searching, yep. They've been searching for signals from other potential civilizations that could be out there in the cosmos. Um but METI is looking to send one out there so that people who are out there maybe sitting there silently listening could hear us and be like, Oh, woohoo, there's other people out there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Alien people, you're talking about here.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think would be like, well, there's other civilizations out there. Um, and the, the way that they're planning on doing this is by using a recommissioned radio dish at the Jamesburg Earth Station in California. The project's going to be called Lone Signal, and it's going to be sending actually two signals. One is what they've called a continuous wave signal, which is. Kind of a continually broadcasting message sending information about Earth, about our solar system in code that hopefully some alien out there would be able to decode. So it's kind of based on universal constants and things like gravity and hydrogen structure and things like that, um, rather than any sort of language or maths that we really use here, which wow. is good. And then the second part of the signal which is actually embedded in the first, is messages from the people of Earth. And so they're just sort of opening up their doors and saying, you can log on to our website and send a 144-character text-based message into space.
0: (laughs) Texting the aliens.
5: Texting or tweeting aliens. They say it's kind of like like either one. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) yeah, your first one is free. And then after that, there's, like, a little charge and all the... All the funds raised go, go towards the project. And they say you can actually also send images into space if you so desire.
0: Can we send them an episode of the podcast?
5: Well, you'd have to tweet it, no. <laughs> essentially. There'd be a lot of messages. You could send the cover art and then tweet the episode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe just the, the bit that we put on Twitter in this episode, but yeah. only, currently only available to Earthlings.
5: Yeah, we totally could. And uh, they say, yeah, if you do want to be part of it, you can. You can be called a beamer, which is the people who've sent things off to be beamed out into the universe. <laughs> I
0: don't know why that's funny. It's just it's it's kind of a quaint term somehow. I beamer. like it.
5: I like it as a term. <laughs> um, these messages are going to be beamed towards a place called Gliese five two six, which is a red dwarf star. Um, it's pretty nearby. It's seventeen point six light years away. So, you know, if we sent a message now, it would get there in 17.6 years. Then it would take them a while to decode it, and then maybe eventually they could send one back. Who knows?
1: So does this star have planets around it? No,
5: not that we know of, but they think that it's actually one of the candidate stars that could host a habitable planet. So there's this thing called the HABCAT, which is the Catalogue of Nearby Habitable Systems, and there are kind of several... Several criteria that a star has to fulfil to be in this catalogue. So it has to be greater than three giga years old. It has to not vary like your stars were. <laughs> um
0: not even by a million magnitudes.
1: It says non variable.
5: Okay. <laughs> well, these are new
1: non variable star new variable stars. they they may have been variable. They may have been. Oh dear.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope not let's assume not
5: let's so assume, assume they're all non-variable and um they have to be capable of harboring terrestrial planets and they measure this by the amount of iron in comparison to the amount of hydrogen kind of in the star and it also has to be able to support a dynamically stable habitable zone so can't be being disrupted by other things and yes yeah, so to 526 has not yet had any planets found around it, but um, the people are confident that there probably are planets there. We just haven't found them yet.
0: Did we send a message there before using Arecibo? Was it to the same system?
5: Well, there have been messages sent out before, but they haven't been continuous messages. They've been sort of one-off short beams of information, whereas this will be a continuous um, message. And I'm not sure where the previous
1: ones were sent. There have been a few of them in the past. But I thought we were a really noisy planet and sending stuff into space all the time.
5: We are quite noisy. And that's kind of one of the reasons why they think that it's not too hazardous because we're quite noisy anyway. But making sort of a a concerted effort to send out information that people might be able to understand is one of the one of the pushing things behind it.
0: Didn't Stephen Hawking say this was a bad idea?
5: I don't know, there have been several people who think it is a bad idea, but there are also several people who think it's a good idea. Like the leader of this project is Dr. Hack Misra, and he's written a paper all about the concept of sending messages out into space. It was a really interesting paper actually.
0: So So we're just gonna flood them with Earth culture? Yep. Then
5: I'd be excited if aliens (laughs) started like beaming information towards us and we could find out about their culture. I'd want to know what they did for fun and you know. Are
0: they gonna vet these messages, I wonder?
5: I don't actually know. Um, humanity
0: uncensored to the universe.
5: That's a little bit of a worrying thought.
1: <laughs> I'm quite disturbed by that.
0: <laughs> Maybe we should just send prime numbers. You know, I like can contact when they pick up the signal from aliens, and it's just the big booming prime numbers coming out.
5: I'm sure some people will do that. Yeah. need
1: your free message to send them prime numbers. I'm just pondering. I'm pondering a lot of stuff this episode. I'm pondering now what message I would send into Gleece.
0: 140 characters. Or 144.
1: 144.
0: So you can also send a smiley face at the end. Yes. 140 characters plus a smiley.
1: What is 12 times 12? What? (laughs) Is that the message? 144. Oh. That would be my message.
0: (laughs) Send them some kind of puzzle. Hmm.
5: And now, beaming answers to the universe, Dr. Josens answers your astronomical questions. Our first question comes from Peter Ellinger, who asks I am particularly interested in the method of measuring distances using a supernova's photosphere and the angle this subtends. I listened to a podcast in which an astronomer detected the light from an ancient supernova by reflection from a nebula and had determined various properties in this supernova explosion. I wondered if this could form the base of a triangle used to measure distance, perhaps light-years across and make more accurate measurements of cosmic distance. I found a reference to supernova 1987a in this method.
6: That's a good question. Um, And yes, uh, in theory, you certainly can use methods like this. Um, But the difference between theory and practice is rarely as big as it is in cosmology. Um, So as you you found, uh, this method has been used on supernovae, nearby supernovae and just essentially by measuring the time it takes between a flash and the reflection of that flash and using that as one end of a triangle and then we can look at the distance between those two things as an angle and and convert those things and that gives us a a relationship between sort of distance and angle which is what we're looking for in cosmology unfortunately that doesn't really extend to much larger distances so 1987A was a very close-by supernovae when we're talking about cosmological distances, we really do want to get to hundreds of millions or billions of light years away and um the problem with this kind of method for uh, much longer objects, much or much greater distances is that uh, as you go further away, obviously objects get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer um, just as their light spreads out across the universe and consequently, the reflection, which is always dimmer than the initial brightness, is even harder to see, so it gets very very hard to observe that kind of that kind of effect for very great distances. Also, uh, if we want to make a very large triangle at great distances, we have to wait an inordinately long time between the flash and the reflection. Because if that's going to be, you know, a, a thousand light years away, we have to wait a thousand years between the flash and the reflection to, so to if, come to us.
5: So if the distance between sort of the flash and the reflection was a thousand light years, we'd have to wait a thousand years?
6: Exactly, yes, for the, for the, for the difference between those two things. So that's really not going to be a thing we can do in a, in a practical sense. The other thing you need is, if, if you want a smaller triangle, which would still be useful, you need extraordinary resolution in your telescope to be able to tell the difference between the flash and the reflection, just because those are very close by. And typically, uh, flashes and things like supernovae that are bright enough to be seen at cosmological distances also completely blot out anything in the same area as them. So when a supernova goes off in a distant galaxy, it's typically brighter than the whole rest of the galaxy put together. It's an enormously powerful flash. So that's going to that's gonna make you block out anything similar. Um, so, I think it's a kind of a non-starter, that idea, but there is a similar idea that's sort of, uh, sort of related. It's actually two similar ideas. Um, one is called reverberation mapping, which is when we uh, map active galactic nuclei, which are things in the cores of galaxies, which are inordinately bright in the radio and some of the frequencies as well. Um, and we can map the structure of those things using this kind of effect, using reflections. So that's, that's one area this works in. The other area that uh, this a similar area that this does work in is to do with lenses. so as I talked about in the May extra episode um, we can look at the lensing of giant by giant objects as a light that comes past them so we can look at two paths of light going round a giant cluster of galaxies and those two paths of light are both bent in different distances and different directions and we can use the difference between the length of those two light paths in the two different images the different lens images of the galaxy to give us a similar kind of triangle, to give us more information in a a cosmological distance. It does work in that situation.
5: That's really, really cool. Our second question comes from Andrew Celentano, who asks, I was intrigued by your discussion on detecting dark matter and dark energy via the lensing phenomena that Einstein predicted. But how can this be done when there are so many masses between the observer and the most distant galaxies?
6: This is another very good spot of a kind of interesting detail of how we do this kind of measurement. So whenever we see an object being lensed, whenever we see an object affected by gravitational lensing, there's a bunch of different things between us and that object. So a bunch of different bits of dark matter have lensed that object. So really what we, when we see a given object, what we're seeing is not the lensing from one particular point, it's a kind of total effect and what we call integrated effect over the whole line of sight between us and that object. So the light's been bent forward and backward and left and right by all different bits of light along that path. So what we see is not, um, is a kind of statistical or an overall average of the, uh, the dark matter between us and the object. But the, the important part is it's not an even average. It's not evenly weighted. So if you think of having a a magnifying glass in your hand and you want to look at something, if you want to make the thing look as big as possible, you have to put the magnifying glass exactly halfway between you and the thing you're looking at. And that's the way that magnifies the thing most. And exactly the same thing happens in cosmology. The, The things between us and an object that lends it most are things halfway along. So when we make a, a map of lensing, we're making a map of matter halfway between us and the thing. Now, that's not perfect. We're really making a kind of smeared-out map of things between us and it. But we do still, if we have enough objects at different distances, so we look at some objects, you know, a million light-years away, some 1.1 1. 1 million and so forth, uh, we can um, we, we can make a sort of pseudo-3D. So it's still very smeared-out, but a sort of pseudo-3D map of the universe like that. Cool.
5: And our next question comes from Randy Taylor, who asks, I'm sure I don't grasp all the issues involved with forming early supermassive black holes, but from listening to the Jogcast and other podcasts, no one ever discusses dark matter as a source for the mass to create these. Jogcast segments have discussed the problems with forming these black holes as would exist for forming large stars. Radiation pressure preventing collapse of enough gas into the forming star to grow to the size observed. But since dark matter only interacts through gravity and it comprises 25% of the matter of the universe, it could collapse and not be affected by outward radiation pressure. It seems this is a pretty straightforward way to create a very large object quickly in the early universe.
6: Yes, it's another interesting question about the, the physics of, of dark matter and how it works. And this is a kind of slightly subtle question, so it's a, it's a good question. Um, so despite dark matter forming the bulk of the matter in the universe and the back really the backbone of the structure of the universe dark matter does not collapse to form very high density objects in the same way ordinary matter does so for example in ordinary matter we get stars and black holes dark matter doesn't create that kind of thing and the the reason why it's kind of interesting it's to do with angular momentum and loss of energy so think about a black hole with an accretion disk around it think about things flowing into a black hole via yes they swirl around and 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 come into the centre of a black hole. So uh, we can see those accretion disks because they're emitting a huge amount of energy. They're very bright, and they're bright because they're hot. Um, So things swirl around an accretion disk, and the the friction, the pressure in the accretion disk heats up and emits light. And that's how they lose energy. So that's how stuff loses energy, so it can collapse further inwards.
5: So it loses it by friction?
6: By, By friction, and then heating, and then emission of that heat into outer space. So, um, it's a, it, it, has to lose energy somehow is the point. If it hadn't, if it, the accretion disk didn't lose any energy, it would just swirl around and around and around the black hole forever because it would have enough energy to keep going around. So it has to lose energy before it can collapse further inwards. And it loses that exactly by friction. Dark matter is different because dark matter doesn't interact by friction. It only interacts by gravity. Um, it can't lose energy in the same way that ordinary matter can. So if you think of a cloud of particles that you had in the universe, if that was ordinary matter, that cloud would collapse a little bit and then it would start to heat up. And then it would emit that energy as heat, which would let it collapse even further. So you can you can, you can can keep collapsing if you're matter until you get to the point where that heat is powerful enough that um, it re- re- reacts against or opposes completely gravity, so it stops you collapsing any further. Dark matter just can't do that. It collapses somewhat... And then it just keeps swirling around itself, unable to lose any energy, to emit an energy by heat, and um, and form even tighter structures. So we just we just don't see collapsed dark matter structure or, or you know highly collapsed dark matter structure.
5: It's really interesting how different it is from normal matter.
6: It is completely different, yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't. It's a very strange idea. If the weirdest thing is if you imagine a kind of uh, a cloud of dark matter, kind of crashing into another cloud of dark matter, they just go right past each other, they go right through each other. So clouds of dark matter can't collide in any way. Um, And we actually see that in some of the most famous dark matter images, like the bullet cluster is a famous image of a a dark matter detection. And that's just two enormous you know, cluster-sized amounts of dark energy, which, if they were ordinary matter, if they were gas, would just smash each other and cause enormous amounts of heat. But because dark matter just goes right through each other and completely ignore each other. So it it sort of ignores itself, dark matter, is, I think, the way to think of that.
5: That's amazing. (laughs) Cool. And our final question comes from Stephen Witte, who asks... As you see something moving closer to the speed of light, it appears to experience time slower. At the speed of light, time stops. So from the perspective of a particle of light, time stops. Say a photon is emitted at last scattering and travels across the universe, only to be absorbed by a detector on the Planck satellite. From the perspective of the photon, it doesn't take 13.75 billion years. It is instantly emitted, then absorbed. But photons oscillate. How do they do that?
6: That's a very good question, a really hard question as well. Um, so this question cuts to the kind of heart of the duality of light, so the wave-particle description of light, the fact that wave is both a, that, sorry, that light is both a wave and a particle. Um, photons themselves, the particle of light, do not oscillate. Photons are genuinely unchanging and timeless. Um, the photon does not know well, it doesn't know anything, but a photon does not know that any time has passed for it whatsoever between its emission and when it gets received, no matter if that's across the entire history of the universe. Um And that's very important. People look for change in light, so people look for evolution in photons, um, and haven't found any. Um, but if they did find some, that would be evidence that photons were not actually moving at the speed of light, they had mass. So
5: they'd have to be moving slightly slower. Than exactly, so they'd have
6: to be slower than the speed of light. And we looked at neutrinos. Um, did find that effect. So people looked at neutrinos, and as soon as we could detect, they were moving at the speed of light because it must be very, very close to the speed of light. Um, but they were observed to be mutating. So neutrinos were observed to be changing over the time of their their flight, um, and that's a really important. That's a direct evidence of the fact of, that neutrinos must have some mass, and therefore be moving at slightly less than the speed of light. So it, it's 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 a really important fact, and it's genuinely true. Um But there's another description of light, not as particles but as waves. And in this description, the things that we call photons are really particle-like perturbations or um, uh, effects descriptions of a behaviour in a wave. And that wave is a wave in the electrical and magnetic fields that permeate all space. And in that description... Uh, there is such a thing as oscillation, so that's what's oscillating. But you can't think of a photon as just a lump of light, a particle of light. In the more subtle description that that kind of quantum mechanics gives us, and it's a thing called second quantization. If you're a real sucker for mathematical articles on Wikipedia, <laughs> um, but if you're into, if you if you're looking at the more real description, it's a, a kind of hybrid between those two things.
5: Okay, so light is much more complicated than we may think of initially
6: exactly and you're you you really can't have a an intuitive picture of light doesn't work
5: good to know (laughs) and if you have any astronomical questions that you want answering then send them in via all the usual channels thank you very much
0: thank you you. thanks for that joe and christina and now on to the feedback we've had a postcard yay it just literally came in uh, an hour before recording or something like that and it's from andrew horner and it says dear Jobcasters, knowing how much you enjoy postcards i thought you might like this one of the most famous apple tree in the history of physics and the reason it's the most famous apple tree is because they've cleverly on the front of the postcard put this in the foreground and in the background is isaac newton's house where he was actually born so the first person to really make a good theory of gravity that was his house and that's what Andrew, I assume, has been going to visit down in Lincolnshire, and he said also this is where Isaac Newton did his early experiments on the optical spectrum. So when he split sunlight into into all colours of the rainbow with a prism. Um, the apple tree, I don't know whether it's a true story or not. You know, the story is that an apple fell on his head. I think he was there because he'd had to go home from university at Cambridge during an outbreak of plague or something. He went back to his cottage pondered things under the apple tree and an apple fell on his head and he suddenly had a A epiphany, yeah, an epiphany about gravity. I don't know whether that's true or whether apple trees live for three or 400 years, but maybe maybe it's the same apple tree.
1: It's a nice story, though. Yeah. It's a nice thought that it could still be there. That one moment of inspiration hitting when an apple falls.
0: Yeah. Gives you the idea that maybe all you have to do is... Get hit on the head by a piece of fruit and suddenly come up with a genius theory.
5: It's just that thing that jogs your head, jogs your mind. Yeah.
0: Not that we're recommending beating yourself about the head as a way of coming up with ideas. And he finished off saying he looked forward to catching up with the June edition. So there's two editions waiting for you now, Andrew. I guess this postcard may have taken a while to get there, (laughs) unless you've been on a really long holiday. Thank you very much for that.
5: And um, things have been a little quiet on the email front, uh, but thank you for all the likes and shares on Facebook.
1: On Twitter, when we released the June episode, Susan Rocket said, Hey, I'm a nerd. Been waiting for this. Thanks. And we also think Rocket is a great name.
0: It's a great name for a space nerd. Yes. And I'm wondering if you said something about nerds on the last episode. I
5: possibly did. I'm not sure. I often call myself a nerd. and I'm proud to be a nerd. It's a great thing.
0: Well, I think that maybe... This has prompted Susan into a public declaration because she says, hey, I'm a nerd, been waiting for this. Maybe she means she's been waiting for this opportunity just to tell everybody.
5: We should all do that on a regular basis. Be like, hey, universe, I'm a nerd.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, that's what you're going to send out, isn't it? To Glees.
5: Oh, yes. Whichever (laughs) it was. Hey,
0: aliens, I'm a nerd. Followed by a definition of the word nerd, perhaps. In 145 characters. 144 characters.
1: Totally doable. <laughs> 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 the says, the Jodcast is full of spacey goodness. I really like that description. It is full of spacey
0: goodness, yeah.
1: We'd also like to say thank you to all the retweets and follow Fridays.
0: And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
1: On the form at form.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast.
0: On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast.
1: On YouTube at youtube.com slash On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast.
0: And don't forget, of course, you can also send us post, and the address is on the website. And that brings us to the end of the show, so all that's left is to say thank you to Eamon Kerrins and Omar al for the interviews. The editors were Christina Smith, Sally Cooper, and Indy Leclerc, and the producer was Sally Cooper. So until next time, Jod on.
1: Bye. Bye. Bye.